You can be turning to 1 Samuel chapter 7. By way of introduction, I've said this before. If you've been here, it might sound familiar to you, but I like what one pastor said because it's so simple and so true, and that is sin makes you stupid. (laughs) Sin makes you stupid. That too. I hear better sounding, more reverent sounding echoes in this statement, though. Sin makes you stupid. In throughout the Bible, and two passages that come to mind are Isaiah 55 and Romans 1. In Isaiah 55, God says through Isaiah, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he has, who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that does not, which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. So I wonder if you hear that. Come to me, says God. For the best of water, priceless wine and milk, come to eat good food, rich food, so that your soul may live. And then in all of that, God asks, while I'm offering something free, why would you decide to spend your money on bad bread? Why do you labor only to be unsatisfied, right? That's pretty stupid. (laughs) Romans 1 is the other place that I thought of. Specifically, verse 22 It seems that Paul is saying, indeed, stupidity or foolishness is a result of sin. Paul writes in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So don't shoot the messenger, but it's right in your Bible. And Paul is saying to me, a sinner, he's saying to you, sinner, you've got to be stupid to give to be given your choice of God almighty or something he made and go with something he made. Right. You you can have God. You can be the life giving, soul satisfying relationship with God. You can have the best of foods, wines, and milks, in other words, the greatest of satisfaction and joy, or you can have something that's usually dressed up to look good and maybe look more appealing, but actually not. So what do you want? And we in sin are often stupid. (laughs) I bring this up because generally speaking, we're going to see this today, that, that once people repent of sin and repent of their stupidity, They're going to see what they have access to in God. And with God's leadership and his uncontested kingship, Israel is going to have peace. So I invite you to stand in honor of reading the Lord's word today in 1 Samuel 7, if you're able to stand, beginning with verse 5 and reading through the end of the chapter. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. 
Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of all the Philistines. All the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. The Lord answered him, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with the mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called it its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, today as any day we open up your word, we want to hear your voice. Um, We pray that through the stories that you have kept for us to study, that our hearts and minds and eyes would be open. Father, we we hope to fall more in love with you today. We hope that what we read will inspire us in love to obey you. Father, I can't make this happen, but your Spirit can. So, Holy Spirit, please have the freedom to speak to us today. Father, may many of us come here in routine And find out that we're a part of a ritual which has meaning. May this be a day that we can raise our own Ebenezer. Raise our own altar to you and say that was a day that the Lord changed me. That's what we pray for. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We have a history here in the book of Samuel. That's really pertinent as we actually close this episode we've been looking at for several weeks now. It really begins back in 1 Samuel 4 at a place called Ebenezer. Israel goes to war with the Philistines. Israel then suffers defeat. And so in a last ditch effort to try and salvage their loss, they remember Yahweh, their God. Now, God had told Israel that his voice and his presence would be in something called the Ark, which I don't think was put together with hot glue. The Ark of the Covenant, um, ESV uses Ark of the Covenant, Ark of the Lord, Ark of God, all all those names throughout this narrative here. So the corrupt priests of Israel, the ones before Samuel, they come and bring the Ark to the battlefield. And then the Philistines finish the job, actually. Israel loses, and on top of all that, the ark is captured. However, God, through the ark, 
literally single-handedly brings the Philistines to their knees. He, he breaks out what uh, I believe to be the bubonic plague on their populace. And they're so tired and wrecked that they have the courtesy to return the ark back to Israel. There's no blood spill on the battlefield this time. Just here's your ark back. And he came back and I argue that even though Israel had been defeated and seven months had passed before the ark came back, it seems that the same spirit in Israel that brought the ark on the battlefield in the first place still persisted because they take the ark and in blatant disregard for God's law, they look upon the ark, something specifically and clearly laid out in numbers four not to do. The ark is too holy. So God wipes out around 40 Israelites in the town where his ark was returned. It took 20 years, but Israel is finally repenting. That's where we're at today. And in today's passage, I see four general movements that by sheer coincidence or by some amazing miracle, almost if I planned it this way, these movements all begin with the S (laughs) or the S sound, actually. Those movements are saturating in repentance, ceasing sins in similar situations. Say that four times fast. Success over serious foes. And then the last movement ending on Samuel's shepherding in serenity. So again, we start in saturating in repentance, beginning with verses five and six. But I'm going to actually back up to verses three and four to give us a little grounding into what's happening So again, verse three and four, it says, and Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth and they served the Lord only. And I remind you of what I said last time we were together, that for them to put away all their gods. It's not that the ancient peoples just necessarily had a weird affinity for stone, wood, or precious metals, but they were just like us. And the prescribed worship of these demonic gods is usually what ensnared the worshipers. Things like ritualized uh, sinful sexuality, ritualized sacrifices of blood and violence, ritualized gluttony, it's the worship that ensnared them. But Samuel says, put them away and truly repent. And what shocked me is that they did. (laughs) They did. Verses five and six would go on to say, then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Let's not overlook the huge event that's happening here. Gather all Israel. Three words, big ramifications, right? Imagine if President Trump had a speech. I invite all of the USA to D.C. and the surrounding areas, and we're going to have a few days of united mourning, united repenting. I want everyone to be there. That's just not another headline. That's what Samuel is saying. And here's what I'm saying. Some of us don't see repentance. We don't see confession. 
and returning to the Lord as serious enough. We do not saturate in repentance. I can tell you this, that I've had more than a few times of feeling convicted and knowing that I needed to ask God for forgiveness. So what do I do on my way to driving to town or I don't know, after brushing my teeth or maybe walking out to get the mail, I simply think a prayer to God, forgive me. And then I just hope that that's good enough. I wonder if you share this with me, this this fleeting or small or simply thought of asked, asking for forgiveness. And I wonder if we consider asking for forgiveness in such a small way, it leads to diminish the seriousness of sin. It leads to diminish any hope we might have in overcoming said sins that we are apparently sorry for. See, Samuel said, get rid of all your gods. And assuming that they did, I don't know how, maybe they had bonfires where they tossed their statues in, maybe they tore down shrines that they might have, but then Samuel demands more. Samuel is asking for all of Israel to leave their homes, leave your livelihoods, leave your schedules, and congregate at one town for a service of mourning and repentance, right? I just came back from man camp. And as the ministerial association president and as a pastor who organizes events from time to time, I can tell you this. Attendance usually depends on the publicity beforehand, right? I don't uh, if people don't know what to expect. Or if people are enticed by what is told to them, many people aren't going to come. Even Christians in church events. If you were men, maybe you saw the man camp brochure this year. It was a little bit vague. <laughs> and it was a less attended man camp, which was too bad because I thought it was pretty good. How about this? Come to Mizpah for a church conference. Oh, what's the subject? Repentance. <laughs> You're all coming guilty with sin. We need to cry out to God to forgive us. Right? Now you're stuck. You really can't ask if the food will be good because you'll be missing the point. And besides, if you ask that question, we're told here in verse 6 that the, no food would be served because they were fasting. Fasting means my bodily needs are outweighed by the spiritual needs, Lord. I want you to be the living bread more than my physical needs of bread. So Israel comes, do you ever saturate in repentance? It's not a heartwarming place to be, I know that. But I wonder if saturating in the emotions of repentance and dealing with the guilt and the shame and the reality that our sins offend God and our sins cause God to die on the cross, maybe the serious nature, the serious sting of that might cause us to second-guess by God's grace, the next time temptation comes around, I know I'm going to have to saturate in repentance. Do I really want to go there again? Instead of Macaw, like man camp, Israel went to another town that starts with M, Mizpah. The word translated is um, something like the place of watching or an outpost because it was a, a high point of elevation that gave view to the, the valleys west into the Philistine country. That's actual uh, place you're looking out. <clears throat> it didn't look like that back then. But 
The author of our book here then kind of throws a, a milestone, a watershed, a bookmark, and he says, here at Mizpah, Samuel judged the people of Israel. This is the author saying, we're continuing to follow the judges. The book before uh, Samuel in your Bibles is Ruth, but in the Hebrew Bible, it was the judges. And uh, it says, we're continuing following the judges. Samuel is the last judge. And he has succeeded the corrupt priestly family we opened with in the beginning of uh, the book of Samuel, Eli and his sons. And so Samuel is now, for all intents and purposes, the highest leadership, humanly speaking, in Israel. And so he is starting this call to repentance at Mizpah, this crying out to the Lord on the behalf of the people. And so as I said, though, Mizpah gave a vantage point into Philistine country. And if you can see Philistine country, guess what? The Philistine country can see you. And I started with the fact that it may have taken 20 years from that war for Israel to repent. But also in those 20 years, it may be that the Philistines forgot or minimized in their memory the suffering under the hand of God through the ark, the plague and such. And on top of that, we see that they likely see all Israel gathering at Mizpah, a town on the western border, a town inside of the Philistines. And perhaps the Philistines are thinking Israel is trying to get ahead of us. They're going to attack. So we pick it up in verse seven. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel I want to stop right here in the middle of verse 7, because I want you to see this. Israel has been here before. About 20 years or so prior. See, this means something. This is a chance for Israel to really show if they are genuine about repentance or not. See, 20 years prior, they were haughty. They suffered defeat. And then they called in their ark as if it was their good luck charm. And with the hearts that they had, they lost. Have you been in similar situations where in the past sin would rule your life right there? Have you had second chances, third chances, maybe multiple chances to redeem your habits? I understand that sometimes it means we need to flee. Sometimes it means I can't go to that place. I can't do this habit. I can't have this in the house and... Thankfully, wherever your sin may take place or whatever you might sin with isn't a necessity in life and thus you can do without. But other times, God calls us to put on our big boy pants and face it head on. Sometimes the temptation comes whether we want it or not. Sometimes all Israel does is gathering for a united time of mourning and the neighbor country takes it as a threat and comes out for war. Sometimes the person we sin against most or the person that causes us to sin in some way imposes in on us. Sometimes the situation of stress or vulnerability where we're prone to sin happens outside of our control. And rather than offensively ignoring or making space that we won't sin, we are suddenly put to a test. Here's what Israel does. And when the people of Israel heard of it, They were afraid of the Philistines, and the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. 
So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. I wonder if you hear the complete difference in Israel's attitude. If you're familiar with, or if you go back to chapter 4, Israel goes out to meet the Philistines and engages them head on, only to suffer defeat. And then again, as a last-ditch effort, well, maybe if we put God in the mix, He'll save us. Here we see, first things first, they plead with their spiritual and political leader, Samuel, we need your support in this. Because we truly desire God's support in this. We depend on God in this. Only He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Do you hear that? These are believers who are ceasing sins in situations where prior to they've succumbed to sinning. And it wasn't because they got lucky. It was, it was because they consciously turned their hearts to the Lord. They pleaded with Samuel. They saw Samuel's praying on their behalf of utmost importance this time when they entered the familiar territory where they had sinned before. And I want you to see this too. I don't believe that this is just running on the hills of what they did at Mizpah. I believe that this is a continued persistence in the Lord. I don't think this is let's ice the cake of what we did at Mizpah, but this is something that Israel does in addition to Mizpah. Well, we've had a gathering to mourn our sins, and let's just ride our wave of that. Keep it up for us, Samuel. No, it's not that. Rather, this should be normative for all believers. You and I need to be constantly depending on God's saving grace, His deliverance. You and I need to be praying every day, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Sounds familiar. Sounds like something Jesus told us to pray. You and I need to be pressing in. And I love that what Israel does in the face of war is without tongue in cheek, without the blink of an eye, our first hope and our only hope is in God. And our hope is in Samuel for pray to us. I love what one commentator says of Samuel, and that is he is a general who makes war by prayer. He is a general who makes war by prayer. James 5.16 tells us, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Psalm 34.17 says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The evangelist John says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Great power, deliverance, confidence. The Philistines who had obliterated Israel before was coming again and were coming again. And Israel says to Samuel, God's our only hope. And the Lord answered Samuel. And we read that Israel has success over serious foes. Verse 10, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. I want you to see again in the author's eyes, here's the opponents on the battlefield. And it's not Philistine soldiers and Israel soldiers. Rather, it's the Philistines and the general making war by prayer. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. The Lord is delivering Israel from the Philistines yet again. This is the second time in this long episode that started back in 1 
Samuel 4, verse 11. <coughs> and the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below as Beth Car. So the idea is that Israel's just mopping up <laughs> after God's won the war. That's what's going on. <clears throat> and then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now, and I want you to hear this, that this is not how we use this phrase. Well, we were friends until now. That's not what it's meaning here. But rather, Samuel is saying every step of the way and all the events leading up to this very moment, the Lord has helped us. This stone, this Ebenezer, is marking the reversal, right? It's marking the difference between the war 20 years prior and the war now, and that is Israel sought God's help, sought God's help for real. They sought it fervently and decisively, and they sought it first thing. Friends, I want to say this. If you are suffering under sin, I want to encourage you that you can seek repentance. You, through God's power, can be repentant. And one day when a similar situation tests you, you through God's power and by His grace can raise your own Ebenezer and say, on this battlefield where I once lost, God has now brought me victory. Amen. To God be the glory for what He's done. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. Some of you say, I know the story of 1 Samuel. You haven't even gotten to David and Goliath. He's a Philistine. All the author is saying is that for this war, it's over. The Philistines are not invading. They lost this battle. They lost this war. God ran them out. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. So now we're going to come to a final moment today in our passage, final movement by way of reminder, here's what we've seen, that Israel was saturating in repentance. They weren't flippant about it. They weren't saying, well, since I guess we're a little religious, we should ask the man upstairs for forgiveness for our sins. Rather, Samuel confronted them. Are you serious about your sin? Are you serious about seeking forgiveness? Do you know the seriousness of your sin? You lost a war over it. You lost men because of it. And so Israel saturated in repentance. They left their livelihood. They all traveled to Mizpah. They all publicly mourned. And in that morning, Israel ceased sinning in a similar situation. Namely, their old enemy, the Philistines, came upon them to attack them while they were at Mizpah. And put into that situation where they so seriously sinned before, they showed themselves to be truly repentant. And instead of seeking God as a good luck charm or an afterthought, they said, first things first, Samuel, pray for us to God on our behalf. And Samuel made war by praying. And God delivered them. Israel had success over serious foes. The Philistines lost the battle. Israel was successful without losing the men they lost last time. And it goes to show us this, and it culminates in this, that Samuel shepherds Israel in serenity. See, he's not Israel's king, He's Israel's highest human leadership, but the idea is this is that God is king. God is king of Israel. And we read this, picking it up in the middle of verse 14. <coughs> there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. So 
The Amorites being a generic term for all the peoples in the land of Israel before Israel came in and conquered it. The author is telling us is that there was peace here as well. So there was no resentment, no uprising from them, no skirmishes with Israel's rule, but peace. And so with Philistines not attacking them externally and the Amorites not rising up internally, the point is, is that externally and internally Israel is at peace. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. These four towns listed, Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and Ramah, were all really within a 19-mile range, a relatively small area in the middle of Israel. It may mean that that most of the populace were in those areas or just that Samuel was a well-respected judge who never made it to the broader lands. Nevertheless, the broader lands were also content with Samuel's judging. I want to back up and get the broader picture here. Do you see this this movement from 1 Samuel 4, 1 to about 7, 2 is this. Israel is just flunking it. Going to war on their own power, using God as a cheap good luck charm, mistreating the ark of God. Twenty years really of vicious cycle sins, serving other gods. And the author pulls us in here to this great time of repentance, this finally throwing off the Philistines and and we get this short, in words, a short summary of time of peace. Serenity. No attacks from the outside. No attacks from the inside. As a Christian, most of my life, I can tell you this. I've had seasons of vicious cycle sins. Seasons of, do I have to get up today? Because of guilt or shame or or knowing that I'm not walking with God, something eats at me and it's a labor to get through every day. I've had seasons of where it feels like wars internally in my mind or at my home or wars externally. People out there who don't like me for reasons I don't know. And I want to say this, that never has repentance, never has a return to a consistent prayer life or devotional life failed me. Never has saying yes to God, I'll press in, I'll come close, I'll surrender to you. Never has that ended badly for me. Rather than a return to the God I know and love invites flourishing. See, as Israel obeys God, so comes peace. I'm a bit of a history buff and I've been listening to and reading up a lot on presidential histories a lot lately. George W. Bush, love him or hate him, here's my illustration. The guy came to the presidency apparently with big dreams for a domestic policy. Lots of things he wanted to do at home. What happens? 9-11. Something he has to, suddenly he has to focus on foreign policy, outside war. Israel is free to flourish with no wars near or far to worry itself. I want to end with some basic logic for you. Isaiah 43 Verse 7 gives us this verse. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Do you see what we were created for? God's glory. To bring Him glory. Our very existence reflects Him if we lived in a perfect world. 
Verse 21, later in the same chapter, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. We are created for God. We are created for his glory. We are created to praise him. <coughs> Follow my logic. What's the best way to flourish? Living into that. Many of you here praise or giving glory. You have a narrow mind. You think, oh, so I need to sing praises, song praises all my life. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. What, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Praising God, glorifying God, it's an it's a alternative lifestyle. <laughs> you can enjoy your family to the glory of God. You can watch movies, read books, do activities that glorify God and that you thank Him for the things He gives you. You point to Him in the choices you make and what you allow your eyes to see, your hands to do, your feet to go to, your mind to think. You can glorify God. And you and I have been fooled or deceived if we think that to live a life to glorify God robs us from joy. If we think that when our Creator who made us, who knows how we best thrive, if He tells us no to something, if we think He's trying to rob us from joy, we're wrong. He's really trying to spare us from harm. His greatest desire is for us to do what we were made for. And if we do what we were made for, we will be most satisfied, most fulfilled. Do you hear that? It's almost as if He made us to worship Him. Novel idea. So if you're not buying it, remind yourself of this great truth. Sin makes you stupid. To ignore God and ignore life with Him is saying, I don't want your homemade Thanksgiving dinner. I'll just stick with my soda and candy bars. Right? I don't want your free choice wine or your fine meats. I'll spend time in the daily grind to work for my morsel of bread, also known as McDonald's. Sin makes you stupid. Our King makes us flourish. Amen? Let's pray. Father, what's so interesting, and commentators lose sleep over this, is that the next chapter... Israel's going to reject you as king and demand another king. But you give us this snippet at the end of 1 Samuel 7, I think a foreshadow of heaven, a foreshadow of the Christian life if we truly live it the way we should. Father, we can have peace internally and externally. And the world would tell us that peace means all things are fine. But you tell us that there is a peace that surpasses understanding. There's a peace that whenever things don't go the way we think we sh they should go, you still offer and give us peace if we would accept it. Father, help us to, to lay down our defenses and to accept conviction whenever your word tells us that sin makes us stupid. Because many of us want to wrestle with this idea. Yeah, well, I prayed a lot and God didn't do this for me. Father, you have a broader picture you have answers that may not comfort us now, but you do offer peace and you do help us to flourish. And one day we're going to have all of our questions answered. Help us to have faith and to trust in you whenever we don't have all the answers. Father, I pray this for us this week, that as we go out and be with our neighbors, that we would imitate this sort of peace that Israel felt at the end of 1 Samuel 7, that we would surrender to you, that we would seek you first and foremost.
that you would indeed give us victory in those situations we are tempted to sin. Help us to take sin seriously. Father, many of us need to go home today and work on repenting. We never thought that repentance and asking forgiveness would be work. Some of us need to take seriously the ways we offend you. And we need to repent of that so that you can build us up to be persuaded whenever that temptation comes again. I don't want to go back to that place of having to repent seriously for my sins. And I know if I commit this sin here today, I'm going to have to. Father, we love you. We thank you. Amen.